Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. You may have seen a recent article in InsideHigherEd.com that began, Wyoming Catholic College has a lot of unusual things about it, each enough to merit a story in itself. Wyoming Catholic is a conservative Catholic college that educates students in the great books and Catholic tradition. It also teaches horsemanship and bans cell phones on campus. I love that. And it turned down federal funding. President Glenn Arbery describes the mission this way. This college is engaged in deep ways with the agony of a culture that has lost its spiritual center. We're adventurous and poetic and deeply Catholic. He likes to cite Dostoevsky in Crime and Punishment. Low ceilings are bad for the soul. The ceilings rise at Wyoming Catholic, which is located in the foothills of the Wind River Mountains, the curriculum centers in the Western tradition. Its Catholic identity builds upon Thomas Aquinas and the magisterium of the Catholic Church and engaging with God in the wilderness. Find out more at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us today Roger Kimball. He is editor of the New Criterion, publisher of Encounter Books. His own books include uh, Tenured Radicals, one of the important books on academia, I think in the last 50 years, and Lives of the Mind and, and many others. A fresh collection of essays by diverse contributors, edited by Roger, has just come out entitled Who Rules? Sovereignty, Nationalism, and the Fate of Freedom in the 21st Century. And that is our topic today. Welcome, Roger. It's great to be with you, Mark. All right. Well, uh, right off the bat, you mentioned a term in your introduction that would probably strike most people as uh, a paradox, an oxymoron, totalitarian democracy. Uh, now, how can a democracy be totalitarian? Right. Well, that that uh, phrase comes from uh, a book by Jacob Tallman, written, I believe, in the 1950s, two volumes, and it's called The Origins of Totalitarian Democracy. And the way it works, really, is it's kind of a, um, it's a Tocquevillian idea, really. Uh, in fact, Tal, uh, Tallman begins the book by quoting from Democracy in America. And that famous passage on democratic despotism, uh, you know, Tocqueville says, how, how is it that that um, despotism would come to a democracy? It seems, as you say, it seems uh, counterintuitive in a way if you have the rule of the, the demos. Uh, but he says it, it, in, in a modern democracy, despotism doesn't tyrannize over men the way that despotisms of old would do. But it, it, it creates its tyranny by infantilization. It proceeds by uh, this incredibly elaborate network of rules and regulations that reach into the interstices of everyday life. And to use, uh, to use Tocqueville's metaphor, it, it transforms the people into a herd of sheep with the government as the, uh, as the shepherd. And um, th th this is this is something that I think uh, many observers have have noticed about uh, modern American society, which as it becomes more and more bureaucratized, it more and more seems to be uh, governed not as the founders had envisioned it, but rather um, by a group of unelected and largely unaccountable uh, bureaucrats and. This is one aspect of the totalitarian uh, democracy that that uh, Talman uh, anatomizes. But there are other there are other uh, other uh, aspects to it as well. 
um, the the uh, one, one of the godfathers of this idea um, uh, really is Jean-Jacques Rousseau with with his idea of um, virtue. We want to have a virtuous republic, he said. And how do we do that? We impose the the general will uh, upon all of society. And who decides what the general will is? Well, it's really people like Jean-Jacques Rousseau. And it, his ideas were taken up by, by many people, uh, people like Immanuel Kant, but also people like Robespierre, who's, uh, on whose lips the word virtue uh, was, was ever spilling outward. And he spoke of, Robespierre did, of virtue and its emanation terror. Uh, so the, the index of, of a society, the French society's virtue, um, could be measured in a way by the rapidity with which the guillotine was lopping off the heads of those uh, deplorables who, who didn't fit his idea of virtue. And of course, um, what always seems to happen with these sort of revolutionary uh, movements is that they, um, they turn sort of ranted and they turn on themselves and um, sort of consume their creator. So it's no surprise that Robespierre himself wound up on the scaffold and, and was, was beheaded. So th that's um, a brief answer to that to paradoxical, uh, that paradoxical phrase about totalitarian uh, democracy, but you know, it, it really it has a long, long history. It's you know, you can go back to Plato, who who always worried about democracy turning into ochlocracy, that is to say, mob rule. And you know, in our in the American founders who scoured history uh, for clues as to how to forge a republic that would be answerable to the people without succumbing to the weaknesses of uh, previous democratic regimes. Uh, James Madison speaks in, I think, Federalist 10 uh, um, of direct democracy, the Athenian kind of democracy. And he says that the, the democracies of the classical world tended to be as short in their lives as they were violent in their deaths. And so that's, uh, that's another aspect of, of, uh, of this totalitarian democracy uh, that, that Talmon, um, uh, as I say, anatomizes. And the totalitarian part inheres in the, the idea that um, the democracy in question uh, attempts to control everything. You know, uh, it's, we see this, of course, in communist societies. Um, and Lenin once said that uh, communism means keeping track of everything. So, uh, you know, you see little hints of this in our own society where these rules and regulations <clears throat> I spoke of, uh, you know, they, they, they um, inhibit, control, guide uh, everything. You know, you want to uh, uh, drive a car, you need to get a license. You want to, uh, you want to run a hair salon, you need a license. You want to fish, you need a license. And you obviously pay a fee and so on. And it goes on and on and on. The, um, the, you know, we see a kind of uh, half comical, half horrifying uh, aspect of this and some of the Title IX fanatics on college campuses where they, you know, they, they're, they're trying to um, police the, the, the social life of students in a way that um, an earlier generation, just, you know, a, a few decades ago would have been appalled at the idea that the, that the deans would be uh, policing their social life. But that's, that's where we've come. And that, that too is an aspect of, of totalitarian uh, democracy, I think. Right. 
You know, you also, uh, maybe as one of the instruments of totalitarianism that is operating today, we might see in a distinction you draw relative to the term populism, but it could be applied more broadly. And that is the difference between uh, what, you, it, what is a descriptive term and a, quote, delegitimizing term. That is a term that in itself, in its very utterance, has a delegitimizing effect on the thing it supposedly designates. How does that work? Yes. Well, I mean, you know, we, um, the, the term populism, I think, is, is, uh, is such a term. I mean, you know, what, what does it really mean? Uh, you know, it means popular sovereignty in a way. But, you know, I, I used the term deplorable um, uh, on purpose uh, a few minutes ago because, you know, when Hillary Clinton uh, disparaged this basket of deplorables, uh, what she was doing really was describing a, um, a movement, uh, describing people who wanted to sort of take back and rule themselves. That's why we called the book Who Rules? I think that the, the, the issue of sovereignty is at the very center um, of all of these essays. It's kind of like a Ra- Rashomon-like uh, enterprise, this book, in the sense that uh, we have, from different points of view and emphasizing different aspects of uh, this question, who rules, that is to say, where does sovereignty lie? Does it lie in we the people, uh, or does it lie uh, in this this um, cadre of um, what I called unelected and largely unaccountable bureaucrats? Uh, and I think that the um, you can see the way that the term populism has been deployed by the left in recent years. Uh, is not it's not a descriptive term really. It's not um, it's it's really a way of trying to um, uh, delegitimize that which it's uh, that's what which it's describing. So Donald Trump, for example, I mean he's the the uh, standard bearer, I suppose, of uh, populism in the American context today. But he uh, from the very beginning. Uh, you know, 19 minutes after he was inaugurated, uh, the Washington Post uh, raised the question of impeachment. Now, why was that? Well, he was held to be uh, illegitimate, but but why? I mean, he was elected in a free, open, and democratic election. You know, he he got the requisite number of electoral votes. Uh, therefore, he was uh, the legitimate president of the country. And yet, there is a large portion of the population or at least a large portion of the beautiful people running the media uh, and staffing our colleges and universities for whom uh, he can't be legitimate because he was elected without their permission. He's someone who um, fundamentally, I think, challenges that, um, uh, that conventional wisdom about how this country should be governed. I mean, you know, we, we think of ourselves as having a a two-party system, but I think that uh, James Pearson, one of the um, one of the contributors to this volume, uh, got it exactly right when he said that really we've uh, we live in a one-and-a-half-party system, uh, in the sense that there is a regime party, which uh, for the last um, six or seven decades has been the Democratic Party, and every now and then a Republican uh, may be elected, but on the understanding that 
he's not going to uh, fundamentally challenge the, the system. And uh, uh, Donald Trump was not cut from that bolt of cloth. And so he does represent, I think, an existential challenge to, to the legitimacy of this um, uh, regime party. And that's why I think people are so um, intemperate in their, in their opposition to him. It's, uh, they're not wrong that were he to um, win the, the, <laughs> the 2020 election, uh, uh, he would continue on this course of draining the swamp and rolling back the regulatory state and indeed uh, questioning the, the legitimacy of this uh, totalitarian democracy project that they, uh, that they have going and have had going uh, for decades. It's really a, uh, you know, a sort of dependency agenda where they, uh, the government will take care of, the, of, of us all um, and, and we agree to it uh, just so long as we uh, also agree that the government will take care of us on their terms. Um, as long as we're willing to give up freedom, give up sovereignty, uh, then then they will uh, they'll, they'll take care of us. One of the features of this cadre, the elite, is its its internationalism, its cosmopolitanism that is discussed in two essays, one by Victor Davis Hanson in the book, the other by John Fonte. And Fonte's piece really goes into some of the institutions that support the, the internationalist outlook. He actually sees, quote, the oligarchic forces of global governance and that these are a real threat to sovereignty. Uh, Aren't, uh, Roger, aren't these philanthropic, benign, peace-loving organizations run by very educated people? Come on. Uh, well, they, they are definitely philanthropic, and uh, they are run by people who are uh, excessively uh, or see extensively schooled. How well educated they are, perhaps, is, is another question. But this is what, um, uh, what you, you put your finger on, I think, uh, something very important. It's what I call the perils of benevolence. You know, um, they're in, in an abstract sense. Yes, they are benevolent. Um, so was Stalin. Uh, so was Lenin. What they, after all, what they were about was, in addition to wanting power for themselves, they were, I think, legitimately, they thought that they were on the vanguard of history and that they were trying to forge uh, societies where uh, the brotherhood of man would would uh, would reign now. Of course, in order to do that, you know, you, as Stalin famously said, you can't make an omelet without uh, breaking some eggs. Uh, but to which I think Orwell had the appropriate response: "Where's the omelet?" You never seem to get get the omelet. And what what John Fonte does in his essays, he goes through a number of these uh, philanthropic organizations that uh, want to push us um, beyond. The what they consider the atavistic uh, structures that we have inherited, structures like the nation state, uh, structures like states that enjoy their own sovereignty. And uh, one one uh, one person he quotes talks about um, uh, if the United States is going to take its place among, uh, you know, the the really enlightened uh, countries of the world, it will have to will have to pool sovereignty pool sovereignty, and, and we'll, we have to kind of give up some of our sovereignty and give it to these transnational entities. 
and uh, you know, I think John Fonte, um, he came up with the best uh, uh, epithet for this, this movement. He calls it transnational progressivism because uh, it's progressive, but it, 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 it wants us to move beyond uh, the idea of a nation state to a kind of utopia uh, this, you know, where, where we're all in it together and we've given up local atavistic uh, loyalties. And we understand that, uh, um, as Hillary Clinton said, it, not only does it, it take a village, but it takes a village uh, in this huge global sense. But what we what we see whenever these these um, these projects come to fruition is not you know greater prosperity, greater freedom, uh, greater comedy, but quite the opposite. It's um, it's a, a sure prescription for um, immiseration. Wherever uh, wherever these people get the upper hand, you can be sure that there is going to be a corresponding loss of freedom, law, and along with it, a loss of of prosperity. So, um, uh, in the John, I think does a great job in that essay of uh, going through a number of a number of um, uh, organizations that have nice sounding names and are full of benevolent rhetoric, but whose end uh, is, is often um, is what I would say regularly um, uh, destructive rather than benevolent. After all, the word you know utopia is is one of those strange words. It can mean uh, two things. It can mean uh, the good place, you know, the EU, that uh, uh, it means good, like eudaimonia, uh, but it can also mean no place. And I think that uh, that that um, it's, it's the latter that that often uh, uh, often comes to the fore when you're you're talking about these philanthropic uh, enterprises. Yeah, M Michael Anton says that there is really a core idea to a lot of these people and that the idea is that there are no real enemies that enemies are really a function of as you put it atavistic formations and, and ideas such as the nation and as, as i read you know anton and john's pieces one of the things that strikes me is in order to run these organizations to lead them to presume that you've got a grasp on the better world. And we're not just talking about a small, as you say, it's not a small town we're talking about. This is the world. Roger, where does the monumental ego, the confidence come from that these people seem to possess? I, I, I envy them. They're hubris. Wow. Yes. Yes. No, it is. It's, um, uh, it's the hubris of unbridled narcissism, I think. Is really when, when you come right down to it, um, there's something um, infatuating by the the spectacle of one's own virtue on parade, and that's why you know people talk about uh, virtue signaling and that kind of um, narcissistic enterprise. And wh why is it so prominent? Why social justice warriors? Why why is this such a prominent feature of our academic life today? Uh, well, I think it has to do with this this unbridled narcissism. Finally, it's it you know the, there's a kind of untethering from the the the, the pressure of reality that that um, our very prosperity has allowed these people to um, indulge in, and you know they like like Narcissus in Ovid's Metamorphosis, they're 
they're um, you know peering into the peering at their own image and eventually it consumes them you know john o'sullivan has an interesting essay here in which he believes that the quote creedal theory of american identity that is the idea that really what what is fundamental to american identity is a commitment to certain biblical and judeo-christian and enlightenment principles you know propositions as, as lincoln put it that there really is more to American identity than that. More is involved. What is the more that he thinks is crucial to American identity? And, and Roger, actually, where do you stand on this? Is a live debate in a lot of nationalist circles. Where do you stand on that? Well, I think that John's point. I don't believe he mentions a Michael Oakeshott, but it's an Oakeshottian idea in the sense that he 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 believes um, that. What really matters in, in terms of understanding um, nationalism, and this goes not, well, it's especially for America, because America is an unusual place in that we have a, a distinct founding set of documents. And, you know, it really was a country that was created by this incredible intellectual and political labor of, of uh, a small group of, 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 of men in the, in the 18th century who struggled to articulate this idea of um, popular sovereignty, that, that idea of where does sovereignty live? It's not in parliament or the king, it's in the people themselves. And the way in which they, that is sort of exfoliated, is really quite an, an amazing, um, an amazing uh, intellectual achievement. Um, but, but, but John, I think, wants to say that, uh, important though that is, there is something else that is more important, that is to say, those local affiliations, family, uh, your local community, you know, it's, people often will say that <clears throat> conservatives are anti-government. Uh, that's not true. It's, I think what they are is uh, they're, they're interested in government of the sort of the most local possible government, beginning with, uh, you know, uh, an emphasis on autonomy, which means, you know, to govern oneself. Parents are, do a good job if they can bring up their children to be self-reliant. Uh, you know, that um, famous essay by Ralph Waldo Emerson, uh, it's in some ways it seems a little corny, uh, but it's, it's a, it, it names it a very important virtue that you don't hear talked about much anymore. But I think that the people who want to emphasize America as a creedal nation, uh, I think John is right that they they threaten to swamp the rich texture of um, everyday life and our you know real commitments in the world uh, with an abstraction. Uh, and this is a I think this is an idea that crops up again and again in in these essays is the uh, a preference for the concrete, the empirical. Uh, the lived, lived experience over against the, you know, abstractions. So one, um, one figure who, who is mentioned by several of the authors is uh, Francis Fukuyama, whose, whose book, The End of History, uh, you know, made a big splash when it came out in the, the mid 80s, I think it was. And what, what it's, it's um, uh, a, a very uh, happy-go-lucky book, a Hegelian in its uh, orientation and he says you know listen we have we have uh, achieved 
the final endpoint of history, really. And, you know, we're going to see liberal democracy breaking out all over. And in the future, uh, the, 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 you know, our biggest problem is going to be boredom because we have fundamentally solved all the political problems. We know that uh, a, a, a liberal bureaucratic regime is the best and everybody's going to fall in line. And, um, you know, it'll be like Sweden everywhere. Well, you know, the ink wasn't dry in that book. Before the, the exact opposite began to happen. And what we are seeing really is more like the retribalization of the world rather than the, uh, rather than the end of history. It turns out that history had a few more tricks up its sleeve. And this, you know, um, Bill Buckley used to, uh, used to advise he, in a, a neat little formula. He said, don't immunitize the eschaton meaning don't uh, try to bring about the, the apocalypse, the end of times now in this world. Uh, it, it's as a kind of distant goal. It, it's, it's something that Christians believe in, that you know, there, there will be a, uh, a final reckoning, but it's not up to us to try to um, make it real here. And the, the attempts to do that uh, always turn out to be very unhappy. Uh, it's, you know, there's, some, there's a reason that um, millenarian sects from the time of the Middle Ages right down through uh, uh, Germany in the, in the 30s and 40s and uh, every communist regime, they, they too think that they have um, you know, peered deeply into the engine room of history and they know uh, you know what what uh, what history is going to do and where it's going to wind up, but I think that um, we can see by their record that that it's uh, often a, a very sorry tale that they tell. Now, one of the later essays in the book is by Chris Buskirk, and he lays out several declining indicators in American life, including for most people, uh, cost of living. Uh, hasn't gotten better for them. We have lower fertility rates. Some general health measures have actually gone down for certain groups. We have less innovation, weakening innovation taking place right now. The elites don't seem much worried about this uh, th themselves. Uh, maybe that's why they reacted so much to Donald Trump's talk about American carnage in that, in that speech he gave. But let me ask you, Roger, sort of as a, as a final rumination uh, on things, where are you on the future of America in in the coming in the coming decades? Are you are you pessimistic or optimistic? Well, you know, I, I think of optimism as being uh, the vice of Pangloss in, in Voltaire's uh, Candide. So I I'm not sure that I would say that I'm optimistic, but I am uh, I'm cheerful. You know, uh, uh, Walter Badgett once said that uh, cheerfulness is the uh, is enjoyment and cheerfulness. They, they're the uh, the essence of Toryism, and um, I, I'm cheerful. I think that um, I think that we are facing a lot of very big challenges, and I, I you know, um, probably every four years I, I get this feeling that this, this election is really, really important. But this time, I, I think it's it's an existential choice uh, before us. Uh, Donald Trump may be an odd messenger, uh, an odd, an odd angel for freedom. But he, he uh, in comparison to um, uh, his opponent, I think that he, he definitely is an angel of freedom. And I think that uh, were he to lose, I think that uh, America would be in, uh, in very deep trouble, because, so would the world. 
Um, but even if Donald Trump wins, I mean, we face a lot of challenges. I, uh, I, I'm the first to admit that I don't really understand economics, and an indication of that is uh, uh, my feeling that having a $25 trillion federal debt is a bad thing. But um, obviously, the people who run the country don't think it's a bad thing because they, they keep adding to that, uh, to that um, pile of debt. Um, I don't see how we, we get out of that, but um, uh, other wiser heads may, may, may know. You know, I think what happens if interest rates go up to some, you know, uh, a few, they flip up a few points, and then all of a sudden it becomes impossible for us to uh, service the debt. Um, but, you know, those are, those are thoughts that I um, sometimes ponder, uh, but then I put them out of my mind because uh, there's nothing I can, I can do about it. Uh, I, I think that, you know, I do believe that America is uh, the greatest nation in history. Um, and although, you know, Chris, I think is right about, uh, in, you know, many of his uh, uh, doer statistics about innovation and income and fertility, they're, they're warning signs. But I think that, um, you know, there's, a, as Adam Smith once said, there's a deal of ruin in a nation. And I remember quoting that once uh, uh, to, in, in the presence of John O'Sullivan, who said, especially this nation. And I think he's right. There's, um, you know, uh, we, 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 should, we should not uh, give in to, uh, in, in to despair, but rather uh, regard the challenges that we face. And there, there are many challenges, uh, no matter who wins. Uh, we should regard them as uh, spurs to uh, greater effort. So I'm not, uh, uh, I'm neither pessimistic nor optimistic. I, I think that, uh, uh, I, th I think that, um, I want to, I'd like to think of myself as being realistic. That is to say, uh, we have serious challenges, but we have um, a lot of energy and uh, talent uh, in the country to, to um, I hope, meet those challenges. The book, I should mention, also has essays by Dan McCarthy, the editor of Modern Age, uh, David Azarad, and Mike, I mentioned Michael Anton, Angelo Cotavia. The book itself is, again, who Rules? Sovereignty, Nationalism, and the Fate of Freedom in the 21st Century. Roger Kimball, thank you for joining us. Thanks, Mark. It's great to chat. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930. Thank you.